candles. Should be great. Well, it's great to be here uh, at Church at Five um, this evening for this uh, second last service before the summer break. So there is a service next week. And if you're a regular Church at Five, you'll know that we finished a series on the Psalms, a series of seven Psalms a couple of weeks ago. And we've just been doing um, a couple of different messages um, before the summer break. So last week, I was sad to miss it. You guys celebrated communion together for the first time as the fellowship here in the evening. I was really um, sad to miss that, but um, that was also really encouraging to, to see um, the, the congregation take that step and really um, enjoy that, that fellowship with Jesus Christ um, in communion that is such an important part of common life together. And this week we've got another standalone message and next week too, I think. So, um, so again, not part of any series this evening, but we're going to be looking tonight at a few verses uh, from the, the first two chapters of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Different to maybe how you experience teaching here at Calvary Chapel where we often go verse for verse. We're not going to be doing that tonight. We're going to kind of go through um, a bit more quickly and just highlight a few verses. The message tonight I've titled, um, Christ Crucified is God's Power and Wisdom. Christ crucified is God's power and wisdom. I didn't come up with that title. It's just the superscript in my NIV Bible above one of the sections in 1 Corinthians, but I thought it sounded pretty good, and so I took it on board uh, as the title. Christ crucified is God's power and wisdom. And the reason for this is that I was doing some reading earlier in the week um, about, um, or actually not related to this message at all. I thought I was going to be preaching on something entirely different. Um, but thank goodness that didn't happen, right, Brandon? The provisional name for this message was something else. So I was reading for something, um, something else, and um, I was really struck by what I was reading about a... It was a, a reminder, a short reminder, as it were, about the, the, the core central truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it relates to us and relates to the world uh, in which we're in. And I think, I, th- I thought as I read it, this was something I needed to hear. And I hope in, in, in passing this on to you, I felt I, sh- I need to pass that on. I feel at the moment, um, in general, if we look at the church uh, globally, if we look at the world globally, we're in a, a, an interesting uh, and difficult time, perhaps. I know there's that ancient Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times. I think we do live in interesting times. It's a proverb I know. Anyway, maybe an ancient Australian proverb, Angus, perhaps. May you live in interesting times. I think we live in an interesting time. We certainly live in a challenging time for the worldwide church. And, um, and so I felt this, this reminder, Paul's, Paul's clear reminder of what the centrality is of our Christian faith, the centrality is of our gospel, is something that we need to hear um, in this community too. And I didn't single out Church at Five. This could have been a Sunday morning message as well. Uh, but um, as I say, because we're in Luke on the, on, the, on the morning services, it falls to Church at Five to uh, receive this message. And I just want to give you a, a little background on Corinth before we start, because I think the reason why Paul writes these words in his first letter to the Corinthians is that perhaps more than any other church or more than any other setting in the New Testament, it's Corinth, the city of Corinth, and the church at Corinth that perhaps most closely resembles 
our world today, our culture today. And so let me just give you a very brief bit of background. Corinth, as you hopefully would know if you've been coming to uh, services for a long period of time, you will have heard of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, was a city in, or it still is a city in Greece. It's just down the road from Athens, down towards Sparta. It's in a really narrow section of land between the two seas, the Mediterranean and the Aegean. And therefore, it was obviously a trading city. It had been destroyed in the past 200 years before Paul wrote this letter. It had been destroyed, burned down by the Romans. That was the kind of thing the Romans did. They burned down other people's cities, but then they often rebuilt them. And that's what they did with Corinth too. They rebuilt Corinth and it became a sort of hybrid city, a Roman and Greek city, very famous for its trade, very famous for the ideas um, and the goods and the people from all over the Mediterranean world that would pass through it. So a very pluralistic place, a place of lots of different cultures, lots of different belief systems, ideas and religions. It was also a large and important city. Several hundred thousand people lived there, a large city for the ancient world. And that was, it was the place where Paul founded the, the major church in the southern half of Greece on his second missionary journey. Paul was a man who traveled around on missionary journeys, four of them that are reported to us in the New Testament. And it was on his second journey, so in the mid-50s AD, so maybe 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, that Paul traveled through this city and the Lord appeared to, to Paul in a vision and said that he should stay some time in Corinth for the Lord had many people that he wanted to call to be part of the church there, just as Yanis mentioned uh, a moment ago in the worship. It's not that we chose God, God chose us and Paul, and Paul was told to stay there. So this was the setting that Paul founded this church in. And it therefore perhaps doesn't uh, surprise us that... Um, the church at Corinth was very tumultuous. It was, it was, of all the churches in the New Testament, there was probably, it was probably the most um, busy, the most energetic, the, the church with the most different things going on. And it had a difficult time both in its doctrine, in the teaching of the church, and in its practice. And that's why Paul wrote this church two letters that we have. There was probably at least one more letter that he wrote, maybe even more. And there, was, there appears to have been letters that the church wrote to Paul saying, help us think through these issues. Give us, uh, what, what's, uh, how do we deal uh, with the culture in which we're living? How do we deal with these issues that have come up in the life of our church? So it's, as I say, it's probably most well known for being a church that struggled with doctrine and practice. And I'm not saying that that means that we're the same on that parallel. It just means that Paul, therefore, had, um, had reason to write these clear words that we'll read together uh, in a moment. And so there are parallels between the Corinth of that time, the culture of that time, the city and the church of that time, and the church in general today as there have been throughout all history. That's why we kept, as Christians, these letters. We recognize that it's not just applicable, not, not, it's not just um, valid for the churches back then who first received them. It's valid for all of the body of Christ, all of the church around the world in all ages, at all times, and in all places. And so the words of Paul that he wrote to that church at Corinth, they carry great weight and value and necessity for us today. Now, the issue that Paul is addressing in the first chapter of, of the first letter to the Corinthians is division in the church. 
the vision in the church. That's, that's, that's the purpose of his argument in the first few chapters. He's heard. There's been reports that have been brought to him. He's not in Corinth. Uh, otherwise, he'd be speaking to them directly rather than writing them letters. He's heard that there's divisions in the church and therefore he writes this response to them. But as Paul's words will show us, in a moment we'll, we'll jump into the text, uh, the divisions on the surface in the church of Corinth were a symptom of deeper issues. And it's in, in addressing this issue of division that Paul gives us such clear foundational words about the gospel about the nature of the gospel, what the gospel, um, its content, what it's like, what it's like compared to the wisdom or the philosophies of the world. And so what we want to do this evening, um, briefly, is look at a few of these statements Paul makes. I want to take them, at least that's the way I want to do so for my own heart, as a reminder to me, as a reminder to me, and I hope that you'll take them as a reminder to you to um, sort of refocus us at this time where we're living at the moment, at this place where we're living at the moment here in Freiburg, as part of the culture that we're a part of here, certainly in um, local culture, but also uh, in terms of uh, the European culture, the, the world culture um, that we're a part of. And, be, and I feel that this reminder certainly is, is necessary for me, and I pray also um, for you as well. Although, again, as I say, I'm not singling you guys out here at church at five. Now, why, why, just let me address one more thing before we jump into the text. Why do I think this reminder is necessary? I think it's in, in a certain way at all times, the New Testament is always warning us. It's not warning us in a, from a sense of fear. It's not a siege mentality, us versus them, where and here we have to put up walls around ourselves to keep, to protect us from everything evil that's going on outside. But it's a, a warning to us not to forget these things because the New Testament is very aware of, how, of the way the world works. So the New Testament warns us to hold fast, to keep, to hold on to the traditions and teachings we have received. Jesus says that to his disciples. Paul says that to the churches. We're always warned to continue in the way of living as disciples of Jesus, following Jesus' example in the way we live. We're warned to continue doing so, not to give up, for example, meeting together, encouraging each other, living as disciples of Jesus. We're also given the command to, to always have an answer ready uh, in 1 Peter 3.15 for those who ask the reason for our hope. If someone comes up, to you, comes up to us and they recognize that we're a Christian, the Bible says we need to be ready. They might ask us, so why are you a Christian? And we should be ready. We should be thinking about how our faith how our belief relates to the world in which we currently live, the world of 2017. And the New Testament warns us, again, not in a spirit of fear, but rather in a spirit of sober reality, that we be aware that there is an evil one, the devil or Satan, as he's sometimes known, um, an enemy of God, and he's prowling around. Again, the Apostle Peter writes that to us, like a lion... That is, he's desiring to devour us, to destroy the church, to destroy our faith, to destroy the gospel of Christ in the world. We have to be aware that this is so. Again, not that we would have an undue fear of seeing something satanic or devilish everywhere we look, but being aware that this is the case. And we live today, I would say, in a culture that is particularly adept or particularly well-equipped 
at seducing us into desiring what it would sell us, what it would give us. Uh, the Last week I was um, in Austria, just that little corner of Austria next to Switzerland, and I was reading an article there in the paper um, about the resources that, for example, internet giants put into developing software and products in order to make us addicted, for example, on our smartphones or on our computers. They're designing the, and I'm not a, I'm not a technical person, the algorithms, for example, on YouTube that are going to give us the, the best video feed so that we're just tempted to just keep watching the next video and the next video and the next video, for example. Or, or, or using our data, um, as you all know, to provide us with ads that we're then going to click on. So this is, our culture is good at this. Our culture places a premium on seducing us into desiring what it wants to sell us. Much of our modern culture is based on that proposition, on accepting what it would tell us, on conforming ourselves to the images that it projects. And so I feel this is a moment to say, stop, stop, wait a second. Who, who are we actually as Christians? Are we part of this system and then we have a little add-on here, an app called Christianity, that we kind of read our Bible app on our smartphone and that's who we are? Or, I mean, in what way should we be relating to this culture? And that's what Paul begins to talk about here in First Corinthians. So as I said before, well, actually, let's dive right in. In First Corinthians chapter 1, if you have your Bibles here, you're welcome to open them. Uh, and just jump around a little bit with us, or, or just we'll just go through, basically progressively f- through these first couple of chapters. So let me just set the context here. Paul writes, as I said before, about division in the church. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there be, may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. So that's Paul's um, context. He's appealing, let's stop with these divisions in the church. You need to be united in mind and thought. And as Paul will show by his argument, I mean, I'm not addressing divisions here. I'm just showing uh, the the background for Paul's argument here. Unity happens uh, not by focusing on each other and saying, let's be united. I'll focus on you and you and you and let's all be united. But rather, Paul shows true unity amongst Christians happen when we all focus on the truth of the gospel. When we all focus on the truth of the gospel, then we'll all be in tune with Christ. We'll all be in tune with the gospel and therefore we'll all be in tune with each other. Kind of like a musical instrument, I suppose, if you were to... Instead of tuning 150 different pianos, each one to the next, if you tune them all to a pure uh, bass C note, they would all actually be in unity with each other because they would all be attuned to the same note. That's what Paul will show us here because he doesn't start talking about focusing on each other. He starts talking about focusing on the gospel. And so he reminds the Corinthians in verse 17, again of chapter 1, Christ did not send me to baptize... And let's not get caught up with that. Baptism is a great thing, and Paul did baptize. But he's merely talking about the focus of his calling as an apostle. But to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So let's remind ourselves right here at the outset, 
As Paul does also, he reminds the Corinthians what it's all about, of what we're about here at Calvary Chapel or at Church at Five or in a, in a broader sense as Christians in our day, 2017, here in Freiburg, here in Europe, here on planet Earth. We're here to preach sorry, and live out the gospel. We're here to, to live out the gospel as Paul did, to preach it, to tell others the gospel. That's why we have been sent by Jesus Christ. And so we need to be clear what the gospel is. We need to be clear what the gospel is. At this time, there is one triune God, so Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He made us, all of us human beings, to enjoy fellowship with each other and to enjoy fellowship with Him. And we see that right at the beginning of the biblical record in the Garden of Eden, God made human beings male and female, and He made them to have fellowship with each other and he made them to have fellowship with him. We're told that it was his custom. We don't understand perhaps exactly how this happened or in what form, but that the Lord used to walk through the garden in which he placed human beings where they had fellowship with each other in order to have fellowship with them on a daily basis. But we, we're told in the Bible, and we know from our own experience, have sinned against this triune God. We've done what we wanted. What does sin mean? We've done what we wanted rather than what God has told us to do. We've done what we wanted rather than what he has told us to do. And if you know your own heart, if you look a little bit at your heart, at your motivations through the week, perhaps when nobody's watching you, the decisions that you make, the kind of practices you indulge in or the way you behave towards others, I think you'll agree that, this, that deep down in each of our hearts, there is this tendency to do what we want to do and certainly not what God has told us to do, not put ourselves out. And so we've rebelled against him. That means we've destroyed this fellowship that we had with him. And because of this, we end up destroying, because he is the fountain, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of true fellowship, we end up, when we take ourselves out of his fellowship, destroying the fellowship that we have with each other. And as we look around, as we go through life, we realize that in almost, uh, in, um, almost any connection, we will have trouble, issues relating to other people, having fellowship with other people. And so God is a just God, and so he's rightly committed to punishing us as our sins deserve. We've done the wrong thing, and justice needs to be served. God needs to punish injustice. Otherwise, he would not be a good or just God. But in his great mercy, he came, the Son, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. And he lived a perfect life with no punishment of his own to bear. And yet, he died on the cross... That's what Paul is talking about here, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of all those who would ever turn from their sin and trust in him. That's the mercy and the grace of God. And we, we as Christians, um, continue to articulate the gospel so. He didn't just die on the cross. He rose, was physically resurrected to new life, and he offers each of us new life as well, resurrection life as well, if we will turn from our sins and trust in him. That means come to him and say, I trust in you. 
I believe what you have done on the cross. I believe that you've been raised from the dead. That I believe that you have borne the penalty for this sin and rebellion that I have in my heart. That I have in my heart. I trust in you. And when we're resurrected, we're restored into fellowship with him and with each other. But not just back to how it was at the beginning in the garden where we had fellowship with each other and we had fellowship with God. Rather, because we're now by trusting in Christ identified with him. We're invited into the perfect fellowship of God himself as the Trinity. And we are saved, what Paul talks about in the New Testament, what the Bible consistently talks about. We're saved from sin and rebellion and the consequences of that, death, by believing in Jesus Christ, believing in this message that as the resurrected um, Savior, Jesus is the true King. And it's this message, this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what it's about, Paul says. This is the the foundation, the, the basic truth. And Paul reminds the Corinthians that this is the basis for true unity. Not that they, in their divisions, rally to this one teacher or another teacher, whether it was Paul or whether it was Peter, who's here called Kephas, but rather rallying to unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ and his cross. And Paul indicates here that this, that this message was um, foolishness or repulsive to the ancient world. And the reminder that we need to hear, I believe, today is that this message is foolishness, not just to the ancient world in ancient Corinth or Rome or ancient um, Judea, but it is also foolish to our world today. So let's read together now Paul's next words. So he's just talked about the the priority of why he came to preach the gospel. And now he explains further. Let's read 1 Corinthians 1 and and, uh, and verse 18. For the message of the cross, Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Perishing from their sins, so those outside in the world. But to us who are being saved in Christ, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jewish people demand miraculous signs and Greeks, that is non-Jewish people, look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Now, if we went through this verse by verse, there's much we could say. We don't have time to get into every element here. But what we've just read is, I believe, one of the most powerful, forceful, jolting texts. It should just jolt us awake. It should definitely refocus us. Jolting texts of the New Testament. We've been reminded of the gospel, what it is, and Paul shows us now 
how the gospel stands in relation to the world or to the world system, the system outside the church. That's a reminder that Paul obviously believes that the Corinthians desperately needed to hear. What he's saying is their petty bickering and divisions in the church about whether this preacher or that leader is was more anointed or, or more blessed shows that they haven't understood the, the, the foundation of the gospel or, the, or the, the radical otherness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I think it's a reminder not only that the Corinthians needed to hear, it's a reminder that we need to hear again and again to make us or to, to protect us against the temptations or the, the seduction of the world's system, which was seducing the Corinthians and I believe is seducing us. Paul says here in verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. And the question is, are we aware of this? Are we aware that fundamentally our message here at Church at Five, at Calvary Chapel, is foolishness, silly, incomprehensible to the world out there? It's incomprehensible. It's, it's not un, able to be understood or, or, or perceived or um, um, by the world, its system of values, what it holds to be true, what it holds to be good, what it holds to be progressive, what it holds to be admirable. Fundamentally, our message here is, as Paul says, foolish and incomprehensible. Now, that doesn't mean that when we communicate here, whether it's in a service or each one of us in our daily lives, that we don't want to be winsome, that we don't want to be friendly and Christ-like as we communicate with people. It doesn't mean that we don't need to think about how we communicate, that we can just get up here and read whole blocks of text and think, yeah, there you go, it's foolishness. But... I think we do have to stop thinking that we can communicate this message in a way that the world will love or the world will love us or which will please the world. That's not going to happen, Paul says. That's not what he relied upon when he went to Corinth. He didn't preach a message that they were going to love the people in Corinth. And they're going to think, we've been waiting for this philosophy to come along forever. Indeed, Paul says, we destroy our message if that's what we do. If we try and preach a message that everyone out there will love, that everyone out there will accept, that will not get anyone upset, then we've lost the true gospel. As Paul continues here, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. This is a, a supernatural thing. Its systems, its philosophies, its judgments, its values, all that it takes for granted, God has made foolish. And the world through this wisdom cannot know God. It does not know God. Its philosophies, its systems do not lead to God. They do not seek the true God. And therefore, God is pleased to use the foolishness of gospel preaching, of gospel presentation, of gospel evangelism in order to save people, to save those who believe. It's, it's, uh, I think it's maybe something that we, well, I think it's something that I definitely need to be reminded of again and again. The temptation is often there for us to present our Christian faith, let alone our Christian message, as something that's kind of normal. 
We don't want to. We don't want to. We don't want to fall out of the pattern in this life when we have to do with people outside the church. We kind of think, yeah, I go to church. And we might not say. We, we might say, depending on where we go, we, we might want to say, oh, I don't really want to say that I go to a Freikirche. People look at me a bit weirdly. So we will say, we get a Kirchengemeinde in German. I don't know, because we don't want people to think, wow, oh, they're weird. They're foolish. What are they spending their Sunday evenings there for? But Paul is saying it's not going to be any other way. The message that we have is foolishness to the system of values, to the philosophy of the world. And God was pleased. God is, our God is the God of the little people. He's the God who despises the proud, but he lifts up the humble. And so he lifts up the humble preaching of a person like Paul or the simple or, or are simply sharing the gospel with somebody, even though we think this person is going to think I am crazy to say this. But to simply trust, well, it's the foolishness of God and apparently it's good enough to save those who, are, who believe. And God is pleased to use that to save people. That's how he brings people into saving faith in Jesus Christ, through the foolish preaching Not because the preaching of Christ is really foolishness, but because it appears so to the world. The world views the gospel of Christ, this idea that somehow God could be crucified on a cross as foolishness, as as ridiculous, as incomprehensible. But our God, he lifts up the humble. He lifts up that simple sharing of the true gospel and he uses it in a powerful way to bring people to faith. And that needs to be a reminder to us. Let's not primarily rely on making our message palatable, um, um, kind of acceptable to the world. But let's, as Paul reminds the Corinthians here, say, no, our message is foolishness to the world, but it's that foolishness and that message that Christ powerfully uses to bring people into relationship with him. So as... um, We could say that polished, positive preachers are no substitute for Christ crucified. We must recognize that the world thinks the Christian message is foolish because Christ was rejected and crucified. And what this means, let's flip over to chapter 2, verse 2, is that our base mode for all of us here, the the, the basic... um, um, orientation of our lives, of, of, our, of our persons, of our identities, of our minds, has to be grounded in the cross of Christ and not in a world system or in a world philosophy. Paul writes in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 2, For I resolved. So he made a conscious decision as he came to Corinth. This is what I'm going to be about here. This is what my motivation is going to be. This is what I'm going to speak about. This is what my foundation is going to be. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Now, that doesn't mean if someone in Corinth was asking Paul, Paul, would you like some uh, fish for dinner? He's like, Christ and him crucified. I know nothing else. That's not what he means by that. But what he means is, this is my base foundation. This, is, this is, informs my identity. It informs who I am. It informs the way I look at the world. It informs the way I think about everything else. So that we can't be in the world without Christianity merely as an add-on, as an accessory. And our lives actually revolve fundamentally around the values or the things of this world. And that is probably the biggest 
seduction, the biggest temptation that we as Christians face, and in, in fact that anyone faces as part of this culture in which we live in. We are all being seduced by cultural factors, by technology, by powerful corporate interests to have our, our desires, our minds, our interests, our opinions shaped for us. And Paul is saying, no, we have to be resolved to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. That has to be the foundation of our life. That has to be the lens through which we see everything else. All other philosophies, whether we come across them in the newspaper, whether we come across them in our um, studies at the university, whether we come across them in, in books that we might read, although who reads books anymore, whether we come across them in series that we watch on Netflix, all of these have to be measured in the light of Christ and Him crucified. We have to be aware of how susceptible we are to influence from these things and we have to be reminded again and again to come back to this is our basis, Christ and Him crucified. So I say to you, treasure the cross of Christ. Meditate on how God has loved us through Jesus Christ and His death on the cross and His resurrection. Explore the wonders of the cross by diving deep into books like 1 Corinthians. Work hard to understand the cross and share about it clearly with others. But realize also that God himself must move the heart of anyone to believe this message that Paul calls here foolishness. Paul makes clear that by our own human wisdom, we never come to know God. As we, we, as we read here in verse 28 of chapter 1, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. So all these benefits that Paul speaks of here in this verse, righteousness, holiness, redemption, they all come through to us through God's wisdom in Christ. And we are only in Christ, Paul says, because of God, not because of our own wisdom or anything in us. So I just want to say on this, um, to finish up tonight, um, this is one of the last messages of, of, the, of the year, I suppose, before the summer break. So if you find yourself leaving us, and moving to another community and looking for a new church, then I encourage you to look for this most of all. What Paul says here, the, the clear preaching of Christ and him crucified. Not only in the preaching of that church, but, in, but on the lips of the people there in the fellowship. Look for a church where they are determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, where they trust in the foolishness of this simple gospel in their conversations with each other at the church and their conversations with others during the week as they evangelize the lost. Look for it in the, the songs and the prayers and I'd hope that you, if you're new here, maybe joining us for the summer, that you'd be finding those things in the songs and prayers here at our church. We want to be clear. We want to be clearly reminded that our only hope is not accommodating the world, is not making a message that, that the world accepts or loves or cheers us on for or claps, but our only hope is trusting in God alone through Christ alone, to trust in Christ crucified, to trust in what Paul calls here the foolishness of God, which is the gospel. To finish, let me just um, skip ahead to chapter 3. 
and verses and from verse 18 we'll read the last section of chapter 3 there Paul writes do not deceive yourselves if any of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age so he's saying there if any of you guys think think I know how this world works and I fit into it well and I think I know um I know the way things are um and I use this is hard for me to to um explain I use the um, the, the philosophy and the concepts of the world to judge my Christian faith, to judge my church, to judge the gospel of Christ. Paul's advice to you is you should become a fool so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. We have to take that on board. Again, not that we end up in a siege mentality thinking everything out there, we have to protect ourselves from it, build a wall, be hostile, but simply be aware of this reality. The wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, Paul quotes again the Old Testament, he catches the wise in their craftiness. He's talking about God. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, he says, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that is Peter. So he's saying, Having understood this, let there be no more divisions amongst you. But we want to look at the thought that's behind it. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Paul finishes with this um, magnificent uh, promise that in the foolishness of God, in the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, of him crucified, where we are being saved, where we are given new life, that this, this wonderful promise is that ultimately all things are ours. The world would say we're full of foolishness to waste our lives on this gospel. The world would say we can promise you all things, but Paul says no, in Christ, because you are of Christ, because you belong to him, all the riches of Christ are yours and all things ultimately are yours. God has promised them to you. So set your heart upon him. Um, and do that by the, the, the songs that you sing, your, in your prayers and conversations, in your teaching and sharing of the gospel. And trust in Christ as the wisdom and power of God. Amen. That's a... Just finish here. That's a reminder that I... I really needed to hear, um, certainly in the days in which we live. I hope that it's a reminder that will help many of you to refocus on the, the truth that stands at the heart of our Christian faith. And I'd, I'd love to talk to any of you guys if you have um, questions about that um, or, or if that matches up with your experience or if that's kind of jolted you in any way, then I'd love to be talking to you.